Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health and entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. I want to start today by saying thank you. We've heard from so many of our now over 600 community members, letting us know how helpful these discussions have been for you. Your feedback means so much to us as we do our best to deliver a community that has meaning and value to you. If you're new to the show, you can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Our guest today is a psychologist, consultant, and an entrepreneur. She's on the advisory board of Women's Health Magazine, has just published a book called Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. And her work has been featured in Psychology Today, The New York Times, Forbes, Vanity Fair, Cosmopolitan, and The Rolling Stone. She believes that entrepreneurs can turn the anxiety we feel into a force for good in our lives. Today, I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Let's kick it off. Dr. Chloe, you yourself are an entrepreneur. You have insight into two areas that are of real interest to our members. The first is that you've built and are running your own business that employs other professionals. And the second is around the insights you've gained from your academic work and your client work as well. So first, I'd like to ask you a couple questions about the personal journey that made you become an entrepreneur and a little bit about your experience so far as an entrepreneur. You've shared with me that you've been a yoga instructor for 20 years, and that's actually how you came into everything you're involved in today. So can you tell us a little bit about your progression from yoga instructor to having your own practice and your own business as a PhD psychologist? Yeah, sure, Aaron. Thanks. Uh, so happy to share about that. Um, I actually started as a yoga teacher. I was you know, doing yoga myself since I was 17. And then in my early 20s, I became a yoga instructor. And I was teaching actually primarily individually. And to be totally honest, my entrepreneurial you know, reason for that was really just because that was how I could make the most money in the shortest period of time teaching private in lessons. Um, what I didn't know was that the type of person that hires a private yoga teacher to come on a regular basis is actually typically a pretty high functioning person, right? To be willing and able to do that. And so I was working with these really high functioning people that wanted me to create these customized yoga programs that were, you know, not only just for goals like increase my flexibility, but for making connections between recognizing that there is a body-mind connection and that by, you know, strengthening their body or making their body more flexible, that they could start to have that translate into meditations and the way that they were approaching the world. All of that got super exciting for me. I started to realize I kind of liked that side of it even better than telling people to, you know, adjust their left elbow two inches or whatever. And so that was what prompted me to go get my PhD in clinical psychology so that if I could, you know, really get into that space with people, I could understand really deeply how the mind works. And so now what I do is I actually blend a lot of wellness and knowledge about just stress relief and goal attainment into my work as a clinical psychologist and also certainly into my book and everything else that I'm doing. Tell me about those those clients that are hiring a private yoga instructor. They have lots of interesting things going on in their lives. What are the type of challenges that they're dealing with? And are they coming to yoga to solve those problems or they just kind of also have those problems in, in addition to a yoga practice? Yeah, I mean, well, it, it was a while ago. So just to be clear, you know, it's been, I don't know, 20, close to 20 years now, yes. um, you know, since that time. And I'm not teaching yoga anymore, although the things I do teach are definitely informed by yoga and by mindfulness and by meditation. But the types of students I would get, you know, it would be like a stressed out stockbroker that maybe needs to learn how to stand firm and not go into thought spirals when one of his trades starts to go sideways. Um, you know, just learning how to, how to have that mindful awareness of what your reactions are, because whether you're a stock trader or a business person or whatever else, 
we don't want to be emotionally reactive. We want to be responsive, but not reactive. And so I would be working with um, students on those types of things. And another thing we would do is learning that with our bodies, we would want to find what we call the point of pleasant tension. So we would want to have enough of a challenge that you are working, but not pushing you so hard that you would just break and it wouldn't be any fun and you just get an injury. And I have found that a lot of the same things apply to psychology and coaching and trying to grow. We, we, we want to be out of our comfort zone, but we also want to have some kind of a recognition as far as like what's actually appropriate and what's actually our really good growth zone. Yeah. So people in high pressure situations and are they starting, I don't, we'll, we'll fast forward to more modern days. I know this is a long time ago, but I'm curious about the, the psyche of these folks. Are they starting to feel the pressure creating negative habits in them? Or are they starting to see their performance drop? Or are they just, is this all kind of aspirational? Like I want to you know, create a superhuman version of myself. It was more, I would say, more on the side of enhancement, uh, which is what my practice mostly is, is it's mostly people that are basically doing fine. I mean, I specialize in what's called high-functioning people. They're not people, you know, that are like in kind of dire need or they can't function, but it's more like maybe they've realized that they've hit a little bit of a speed bump or there's actually some kind of a a new goal or a new level or a new skill that they want to build. And then they want some support, but also some challenge that will help them grow to get to the next level. I love that. Well, I love that you mentioned speed bumps. So I want to ask you about, so you started your business from the ground up. Now you've got a thriving practice, dozens of media appearances, influential clients. But of course, to get there, you've got gone through many challenges and growing pains that many of us have here. Many of us here, many of us here have become all too familiar with in building our companies. These things can have a big impact on every aspect of life. So I'd love to hear how you manage those in your business because you're both a, a, a PhD psychologist and an entrepreneur. So what are some of the most difficult moments you were faced with in building your business and how did you get through them? Yeah, I mean, I also do share about some of this in my book as well. Um, and, you know, certainly still having challenges too, right? I mean, that's one of the things, of course, too, is that for high-functioning people, we're always climbing, so we're always supposed to, you know, be having challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but one of the things that I, I I struggled with when I first started was I didn't even know if I'd be able to pay my own rent. I didn't even know if I would be able to just stay open. It was never even like on my radar that I thought, oh, I'm going to hire a bunch of therapists, and you know, it was more just like, can I just? stay in business. Um, and so to manage my anxiety about that, uh, what I did is I actually just made a work schedule for myself 40 hours a week. And, um, I would report to work, report to the office, whether I had a client or not. And my job in my mind was to either be seeing clients or figuring out how to get them. And that's one of the points of my book, nervous energy, harness the power of your anxiety is that anxiety's healthy function is to stimulate preparatory behaviors. It's supposed to kind of tickle us into doing something, right? So we don't want to get rid of the anxiety. We want to use it. And so I was able to use that anxiety as a way to actually stimulate myself to go to the office. And instead of just sitting there worried about not getting clients, um, I was then able to say, okay, well, what can I do? Um, Another example of a growing pain kind of in a different direction and how I got some help with it was actually through entrepreneurship organization. So, um, you know, when my business started doing really well and I was stunned, my accountant told me that I had crossed a million dollars in revenue. I actually Googled, what do you do if you make a million dollars in revenue? I was like really shocked. And that's how I actually even found EO in the first place. And one of the problems I was having at the time was I would have therapists that would be working for me and I would stock them up with lots of clients. And then they would say, you know, I'm just going to like go start my own office. And of course it was in their contract that we have non-competes and stuff, but if they wanted to test me on it, I was put in this really weird position, right? Because like, I don't want to like fight over the client and like force the client to stay at my, like, it was really weird. It was a weird situation. And so what I did is I, I reached out for support, which is something high functioning people are sometimes really good at and sometimes not so much. Um, it kind of depends. Um, sometimes we can be such big do-it-yourselfers that we forget how to ask for help. Um, and so it was actually, thank goodness for EO that I was in my forum. I was able 
able to really share about what I was going through and acknowledge even just some of the personal stuff of my own hurt that like these employees were doing this to me, but also to think about it from the business side. Um, and I'm very happy to say that, you know, it took about a year or two, but I was actually able to come up with um, a pretty clever, um, you know, business solution that mm-hmm. ended up working very well, not only for me, but also for the exiting therapists mm-hmm. and for the clients. And I even actually packaged it up and, and sell the system now to other practices. So it, it came out as a win at the end of the day, um, but it was a tough one. And I, I still have tough ones. That's incredible. And I love as we're getting deeper into your story, it's like there's more entrepreneurial ventures. And this is so classic among all of us entrepreneurs, right? It's like we learn something, we package it, we provide it to others. And there's a couple of things in there that really stood out to me. One, the, the reaching out and being part of a community or, or a support network. And you and I actually connected through Entrepreneurs Organization. That's how I met Dr. Chloe. And, um, the, you know, it's an incredible organization, about 16,000 entrepreneurs across the world. And there's lots of different places like this where entrepreneurs can, can come together and, and talk about the things that honestly are scary or not even appropriate to talk about sometimes in other contexts with our friends or with our spouses or with other folks, especially when you cross that million dollar threshold, right? We always say in EO that it's, um, you know, not, there's not a lot of people that are going to feel sorry for your problems when you've just reached a million dollars in revenue. <laughs> Although mm-hmm. oftentimes the problems even get bigger and, and that group brings us together. Um, and then uh, the second piece, I want to talk about kind of all the roles that we hold outside of our professional identities and entrepreneurs. So uh, at Founders First, we talk a lot about identity and the things we can do to try and maintain some focus on what's important to us outside of work. So this keeps us from accidentally sacrificing our health, our relationships, whatever else we're passionate about when we build our companies. You and I have discussed how entrepreneurs really become their business over time, or they can become their business, and how hard it is to maintain that separation. You've got a thriving practice, but also managed to make time for things that are personally important to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you maintain that balance? And we've had some other speakers come in and not like the word balance. So I'm also curious if you, what you think about that word balance between the, the two sides. Yeah, I know. I've, I know that too, Aaron. Some some entrepreneurs have a real, you know, thing about balance, and you know that it's not possible and everything. Um, I, I guess, I, to be honest, I'm still figuring it out. So, you know, I'm I'm also a mom to a wonderful little boy that's almost four, and I will say it has totally changed. You know, my my perspective and my approach to time. I think that up until that point, my business was my baby, and you know, now that I have an actual baby, um, you know, it's it's definitely changed the math a little bit. Um, but it's actually helped a lot. Like I I started upping my fees. I started seeing my time is more valuable. Like the, the supply and demand of my life became different. And I was, you know, just delighted to see that, that the, that the market was there for it. So, you know, that was exciting to see that my revenue, you know, hasn't dropped a bit, but you know, the uh, time output, um, certainly has, um, I think also for, you know, that I think maybe one of the reasons why balance gets to be such a tricky word for entrepreneurs is that I know for me, um, there almost isn't always a distinction between my personal life and my professional life because mm-hmm. I can be with my son and I can be having an incredible moment as a mom. And then I can realize like, oh, I'm having an insight or an experience right now that would really translate well to my audience, mm-hmm. that my my audience would love to know, you know, that I've discovered a great way to, you know, connect with mindfulness through spending an afternoon with your child. Um, and so there's definitely times where there is a blur. And I, I actually like it that way because I personally wouldn't really want to be in a business that I didn't feel that I had some really personal, heartfelt soul skin in the game. Like that's actually why it is so interesting. That to me is why my work actually does feel like play sometimes. Um, so, you know, again, just like every fingerprint is different and every person is different. I really respect that each of us is going to have a different take on it. But for me, it's all kind of like drinking from a fire hose. You know, my quote, personal life is fit. I love it. And then I, I love everything that's happening in my business life too. I mean, when I'm writing books, like my, my book is sharing stories about my own life and about building my own practice. And for me to say that that's not personal, um, I, I just, I couldn't go there. So for me, um, it, they all kind of meld together and, um, I'm loving every part of it. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. We can also, as I think in any professional identity, whether we're entrepreneurs or not, it, it's easy to start to build friendships around people we meet through professional connections and start to have that become our friend circles as well, right? I've definitely experienced that. I was in an industry in, in the software and marketing automation industry for 10 years, running my own business there. And I would run into people at conferences and events that became friends. And then the work events kind of started to feel like friendly events. And so you're right, the, the blurring of those things can can get can get infinitely deep. Um, I remember the thing that you said previously that stood out to me and it was around discipline. And I love that you said that as you're starting your business, you're feeling this anxiety around what's going to come next. And can I fill my client roster and can I pay my rent? We've all felt that as entrepreneurs, sometimes in the first year, sometimes in the 10th year, unfortunately, <laughs> but that, that idea of creating uh, your, your 40 hour work week, some, some structure and some discipline around it. And then even breaking that down into your two roles, either getting clients or working with clients is really interesting because I think so many of us as entrepreneurs, we start our companies because we want freedom. We want more personal freedom. We want where maybe some of us are running from things. I think I was running from things when I became an entrepreneur. And the last thing we want is something that feels like a boss or feels like structure. Yet the first thing you went to and talking about getting through the tough early years was that you built some structure for yourself. I find that really, do you see that in your clients or in yourself, that, that, that challenge of, I think a lot of us thrive with a little bit more discipline than entrepreneurship brings to us because it's such an open book. Yet many of us think that we don't like discipline and, and we want complete freedom in our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the key word really is about choice. Um, so I was choosing to create that structure for a goal that I wanted that mattered to me. And so that was a structure and a discipline, self-discipline that I was, you know, more than happy to exert. And frankly, after going through a PhD program and like all the insanity associated with that, um, it really felt more like a privilege, you know, to just show up at a nice office and, you know, think about how to get clients and reach out to people. And, um, I actually felt, you know, really liberated. Um, but, I actually, you know, think that structure is is important and I think it it helped me to feel like I was I had a sense of progress um and but at the same time it, it was freedom. It would have been very different if somebody else had been giving me orders to like you know, design and build a practice for somebody else about, you know, orthodontics or something that didn't matter to me. But, but this was literally my name on the door. And um, the, the Greek root of the word um, psychology, it comes from the Greek root psyche, which means spirit. And again, for me being a former yoga teacher, I had been waiting for years. I was chomping at the bit, you know, to be able to have my own office and just start creating material to tell the world about myself. So, um, you know, for me, it wasn't really a matter of like having to force myself. Um, it actually eventually got to the point where I had to, my discipline was more about telling myself to stop working and to hire other people mm -hmm. and to realize that I needed to step back. So I guess, you know, everyone's got their own angle on it. But for me, it was more like, um, more like an addiction almost sometimes. My, my secret mm -hmm. thing is I, it won't be a secret anymore, but I always say that like, um, if I didn't get paid to do therapy, I would pay money to do it. Like I actually love it. So, um, I was just, it was more like I was excited to figure out how to get clients. I think that's a problem that so many of us as entrepreneurs face is that just like amazing excitement we get out of you know, the things that we're passionate about or just the opportunity to run our own companies. And that, that, um, you know, I use the word addiction as well a lot. Maybe you said obsession, but obsession or addiction uh, to me, it's like addiction to the excitement of it, addiction to being able to have control over, you know, not as maybe much control as we think we have as entrepreneurs, but it's some amount of control over what I create and put out there and the response that I get back from the world. Um, so I want to transition us a little bit to, um, one of the questions that I hear most often, I think, among folks in the Founders First community is this, um, you know, don't be so negative about stress or don't talk so much about removing stress, right? Some stress is good. And you're kind of bringing that sort of dialogue, I think, to the anxiety side here as well. Now, that's the one I hear less from people. I think everyone would like to have their anxiety go to zero, maybe. Um, so we talk a lot about in our community, the impacts of stress and anxiety on our health and our families and on overall performance. Um, we've heard many stories from previous forum guests and from our members about times they've come to a breaking point 
sometimes dangerously so due to the massive amounts of stress they're experiencing over prolonged periods of time. You yourself focus a lot on anxiety, and that's obviously what your book, Nervous Energy, Harnessing the Power of Your Anxiety, talks about, and how not all anxiety is bad, and how we can use it to achieve higher productivity and better performance. So in your practice, what have you seen are the effects of anxiety on entrepreneurs? And what can you share with us about how we can turn some amount of it into a force for actually improving ourselves? Yeah, well, I think step one is is actually just to to reframe it that anxiety in and of itself, you know, really actually doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, and in fact, it's a person without anxiety would 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 actually be dead, right? It's anxiety that that prompts you sometimes to look both ways before you cross the street. I would almost think of it like body fat, right? So it would almost be like a person who said, I want to get rid of all body fat, right? Like I've just heard, you know, I don't want to be fat. And so I'm getting rid of all body fat. We'd say, wait a minute, a low fat is actually good for you. It gives you that insulation. It gives you your curves. It you know does all these good things for you, and so I see a lot of times that people actually get anxiety about anxiety mm-hmm. because the moment that they detect the presence of anxiety, they become anxious about that um, instead of realizing that in fact, you know that's why the name of the book is Nervous Energy. That there's actually a, a certain amount of anxiety that that gives you your A game, that makes you sharp, that you're on point, that you've got that little extra zing, right? So even before I got here on camera with you today, I kind of had this little kind of extra heightened sense of awareness. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a gift from mother nature that gives me this little boost that I'm going to be a little bit extra right now. Um, So anxiety, again, is really a gift that we can learn how to channel um, instead of feeling like we have to shout it down or deny it. Ironically, it's actually that view that it's it's bad or we have to get rid of it that causes people sometimes to want to ignore it or deny it or block it out and that's actually when it gets problematic because when we don't listen to feelings at lower levels that's when they have to scream and shout to get our attention so if i were able for example like I, the example i gave where i could constructively realize that i had some anxiety healthy anxiety about not getting enough clients in my practice when i first opened if i hadn't been anxious about that frankly it would have been grandiose or entitled of me to just think that it was just going to happen, right? So that little bit of anxiety, it was a healthy fear of the reality that it, clients weren't just going to appear, that I might have to actually go and get them. Um, so I think a lot of the first step is to reframe the anxiety so that when it starts to I don't want to say rear its ugly head. I want to say when it starts to make its presence known, that we can dialogue with it and listen to it and learn about what it's trying to tell us that it needs or wants, and then we can partner with it instead of trying to shout it down. Help us as um, as entrepreneurs in the audience here think about, and I love that comment because I've experienced that myself, the ignoring it, and then it starts coming out and screaming and shouting in all sorts of different ways, both even mentally and physically. We talk a lot about that in the community, like what are the what are the things we feel in our body when we feel anxiety and what is the, the state of our minds? But um, those early warning signs and then also the, the screaming and shouting, how does that actually manifest itself? So if someone's coming in to see you and they feel like they're struggling with anxiety, what are the things that are actually happening to them? Is it, is it like insomnia? Is it their heart racing? Is it, what are the things that people who are listening here should be looking for to, to realize maybe I'm ignoring it and not solving it as a problem? Mm-hmm. So you hit the nail on the head, Aaron, right there with um, insomnia. Okay. So certainly if you feel like you're, you're going to bed at night and you've got just the racing thoughts or, you know, you're waking up in the middle of the night with lots of thoughts, you know, that would be a sign again, that, that, that anxiety is still stimulating you and that, that you're aware that there's something you need to think about or something that you feel like you need to solve. Um, you know, maybe kind of butterflies in your stomach or even sometimes body aches will come up or that, you know, kind of, um, increased heart rate. But for me, one of the big factors in this rubric is to, first of all, find out do we know what the anxiety is about, right? So if you are waking up in the middle of the night and you know what's on your mind, 
that's a different story than someone who's waking up saying, I don't know why, but I just wake up in the middle of the night with this feeling of dread, right? And so if it's the former, then I would say, oh, okay, well then it sounds like that material needs to get some attention in your conscious life, you know? So when you wake wake up in the middle of the night, let's write those thoughts down and then let's examine them together and let's see, you know, if it's coming up because maybe you have um, some unrealistic belief systems like, you know, we're, we're never, ever supposed to ever have an unhappy customer. And so then, you know, whenever it's like the sword of Damocles hanging over your head, you know, God forbid that somebody is ever unhappy. Um, and so then you need to, you know, challenge that belief or think about your um, improvement processes for how you'll handle customer satisfaction issues and those kinds of things. But on the other hand, if somebody's saying, I'm just waking up anxious and I don't know why, um, that would be, Aaron, a little bit more in the problem category where I might say, this person might be um, denial in denial of anxiety to mm-hmm. the point where they themselves have pushed the awareness of the source of it out of their mind. Um, and in cases like that, you know, what I might do is even just say to the person, well, hypothetically, what might you be anxious about? you know? Um, and then, then we can start finding our way in from there. I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are also familiar with things like mind maps, mind maps, which are also covered in my book. And those can also be a great way to understand, like, for example, with, with COVID, a lot of people will say like, gee, I'm just thinking about COVID and it makes me anxious. And I don't really know any much more than that. But then as we start doing a mind map, we start realizing that maybe that connects to thoughts about their parents and that connects to other things. And so by tracing out that mind map, we can start understanding what are the sources of that anxiety. Because I always like to think about anxiety from a top-down perspective, meaning we just want to work with the symptoms of the anxiety. Certainly, if a person is having shortness of breath or racing thoughts, I want to teach them how to slow that down. But I also want to think about it from the bottom up and understand what's the source of the anxiety so that we can address it productively and constructively. Like, as, as the gift that it is. I sometimes think of it as like when the engine light comes on in your car, you don't want to block that out. You want to actually pay attention to it because it's giving you important information. Yeah, that's, uh, I think the biggest difference, I love that because I think in, in me, the biggest difference in the way I think about anxiety now as as an almost 40-year-old entrepreneur, turned 40 later this year, it's on my mind a lot, uh, versus 20 years ago when I was first starting out, was this, um, th- the idea that, you know, I would, I was maybe not tough enough because I was starting to feel these symptoms or I wasn't going to be able to be a great entrepreneur. And, and now the way I think about it, and, and that's through a lot of work with an anxiety therapist and also just a lot of trying to study this and understand it is that it's really incredible to me that as you're sharing here, there are so many really tactical tools to solve these problems in, in our minds as entrepreneurs. In the same way that when we have a marketing problem, we can find somebody who's built an amazing marketing program that helps us figure out how to take our problems and solve it using a process, right? The same with HR or technology or these other things that we run into in our businesses. And there's these incredible disciplines like what you do, Dr. Chloe, that helps us break these challenges in our own minds down into processes that we can learn and we can get guided through and coached through to to get through these problems. It's been a, a real epiphany for me in my life to realize that there's just tools for everything, including our brains and our minds and how we think about things and how we stay motivated or how we stay calm. Yeah, definitely. And of course, the tools won't really be available to us until we can, you know, recognize that that we need them or that we could benefit from them, right? So as you just said, if entrepreneurs have the idea in their mind that they're not supposed to ever have anxiety or it means that something's wrong or that they're weak or whatever, um, then it's almost like you're putting the blinders on actually a a helpful awareness tool and actually a source of energy. Um, And so, you know, whether it be, you know, an issue about a willingness to acknowledge anxiety, or I have it also with a lot of clients that, you know, are working on their self-talk and they'll have this really negative self-talk. And then when they catch themselves in their negative self-talk, they want to become really negative about the negative self-talk. They're like, oh, damn it. There I go again. I'm so bad with the negative self-talk or like with the anxiety, like they're like, oh man, I'm anxious again. And so one of the, you know, little hacks I offer sometimes, and I talk about this in the book too, is actually when, when, whenever you're doing like what that, 
thing is that you're trying to course correct or improve in your life, when you realize that you're doing it, don't get down on yourself. You actually want to congratulate yourself for recognizing it and for seeing it and realizing it. And then you want to wrap that awareness. I know this sounds really new age, but bear with me. You want to wrap that awareness in self-compassion because then that's what really empowers you to be able to to practice true self-care, to be able to, instead of being angry at yourself for being anxious. I mean, that results in like the situation where someone's yelling, just relax, you better just relax, right? That never helps. And so if we can instead think about the way that we deal with ourselves in our own anxiety, And we can recognize it with compassion and say, okay, wow. So what is it that this anxiety is, where where, where is it coming from? Is it about wanting me to be able to provide for my family? Is it about me wanting to be able to take care of my employees? And then to be able to validate that need and recognize, you know, I'm coming from a good place here. And then to, to offer that anxiety, just some better tools. Again, instead of trying to push it away to say, okay, anxiety, I get it. You've got a valid concern here. Now let's just see if we can find the right tools to help use that anxiety to make you do some good preparatory behaviors and bring you on board and really integrate that energy. We don't want to waste our own energy. Yeah. I love that you use the the check engine light analogy. That's one <laughs> that I like as well. That that um, you know, if the check engine light on your car comes on, now sure, a couple of us are going to go, you know, maybe another thousand miles because we've got other things to do. But I think in the entrepreneurial world, sometimes the analogy is that like when we see the check engine light come on, we're personally offended because it's like a weakness in our system, <laughs> and it's the, and then we just jam down the gas pedal because we're like we've got to get tougher, we've got to get tougher, let's go faster, 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 and then the hope is somehow miraculously we like skid across the finish line with the engine on fire before the whole thing blows up. Um, and, and really what we're talking about here in, you know, self-compassion and self-awareness is to just to notice that check engine light and to say, you know what, there's probably actually a pretty practical solution to this. Let's, let's go get started on it. Right. And then we don't have to skid across the finish line in a blaze of fire. We can cruise through feeling strong and, you know, ready to go out for another race right afterwards. Definitely. Yeah. And I think the reality, unfortunately for us as entrepreneurs so many times is that we, we catch on fire and the whole thing blows up long before the finish line. We thought we could get there right? and, and because of the pressure, we don't make it. All right. I want to, I want to talk about nature versus nurture here. And this is a big common discussion in, in the type of people that become entrepreneurs and the type of challenges. So we've all seen the data on the correlations between entrepreneurship and mental health challenges. Um, it's, it's pretty bad. On the flip side, these conditions are also associated with a level of creativity, vision, and brilliance that make us outliers in, in some actually pretty incredible ways. Our past forum guest, Dr. Michael Freeman from UCSF calls them our superpowers as entrepreneurs. A question that's always on my mind and that we've talked about in past forums is whether these issues are present in all of us from birth or whether the stress and uncertainty of entrepreneurship creates these challenges within us. You know the entrepreneurial struggle personally and have dealt with entrepreneur clients as well. So what are your thoughts on this nature versus nurture question? Is entrepreneurship, um, does it cause this in us? Does it cause these things to come out because of the pressure cooker? Um, Or would these struggles persist in us as entrepreneurs no matter what we did for a living? And Finally, does that distinction even matter? Because this is what probably the number one question we talk about in our community. Is it is it changing us or were we this way before? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the answer lies somewhere in between. So I think in order to even, you know, venture out on in business on your own, I think a person has to have a certain amount of independence and autonomy and you know, willingness to to strike out on their own. Um, and then once you get out there, um, and you're functioning without the backstops of a boss that's going to call you and say, you know, you haven't been to work in a week or, you know, um, gee, I, I know you, we, we lost that big client. Like, how are you doing with that? When, when you're having to deal with all of that by yourself, um, if you don't know how to manage 
that independence and that autonomous side of yourself, then yes, it can become a vulnerability. Um, but, but I really think that's true of most any trait, um, you know, like even something really innocuous, like just being super nice, that can be a strength, but it can also be a weakness if you don't learn how to have boundaries around it. Right. And, you know, just learn how to make sure people don't walk all over you. So I would say it's kind of both like, yes, like entrepreneurs may be more likely to just have innate tendencies towards being independent and towards being free thinkers. And then you're absolutely right that situationally then they could get into situations where they don't have as much structure or accountability. And then that latitude can get a little bit, um, a little bit too permissive sometimes, mm-hmm. and they can, you know, struggle with, with, with some of those issues. Like we talked about substance abuse before and things like that, that mm-hmm. if you own the company and in fact, you know, you're, you're going out whining and dining clients and you're signing clients and you're landing clients. And the more you drink, the more you land and it's working great. But I mean, you know, so I, I do think that the old analogy of, you know, work hard, play hard is not an analogy, but the same work hard, play hard. I think it can come to a whole new level for entrepreneurs. And so, yes, I mean, we can also get more vulnerable to things like burnout. Um, But yeah, I mean, as far as the nature nurture thing, I think that they're very intertwined. All right. To our guests, if you have a question you'd like to ask Dr. Chloe, now's the right time to drop it into chat. I see a couple of them have already come in. So I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll go over to questions from the audience and I'll, I'll read them out. So drop them in now to make sure we don't miss it. We've got a couple of good ones coming in here. So, all right. So Dr. Chloe, you've built this amazing practice in, in Manhattan. I don't know if we'd mentioned that yet, that these, these high achiever clients you're working with were, were in Manhattan, um, in New York, which is an extremely competitive market. Um, you're a resource for a host of national public Numerous media outlets reach out to you for insight on a bunch of issues. You've got a book coming out. Um, You've got a pretty amazing story. And I think it's one that many entrepreneurs just getting started can take inspiration from. So my question is, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are just getting started? What what would you tell them about how they can manage the personal impacts uh, and and the stress itself um, so they can see the kind of success that you've seen and, and build their business, which is what all entrepreneurs want to do? Yeah, thanks, Aaron. So, um, one little tiny clarification is actually, um, I'm I'm very pleased to say that I actually my my clients are not limited to Manhattan. I literally have clients all over the globe, which is super exciting. You know, thanks to like digital life. You know, so yes, the bulk of my clients are in Manhattan, um, but but they are all over the world. Um, and you know, what I would say to entrepreneurs that are that are just starting um i would say number one you know do give yourself some structure recognize that you know you you, there's just going to have to be a certain amount of building time and, and building phases and it's important to make sure that you have a financial way that that you can be covered so for me that was simple because I was so used to living on a shoestring budget as a PhD student that I was like literally able to survive easily off of three clients a week at this point in my life. I don't know how I did it, but at that time, you know, it was like, I was like, wow, I'm swimming in money, like just by seeing three clients. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say that you definitely do not want to underestimate the importance of technology. I think one thing that made me stand out that was quite different from other therapists, I had a little bit of an open market because most therapists really just didn't have, you know, much of a website. They weren't very social media savvy or mm-hmm. anything like that. Um, so I, I think that really, I put on my empathy hat as a psychologist and I said, okay, what is it like for clients that are out there trying to find a therapist? And at one of my uh, training jobs was I was actually pairing um, Fortune 500 executives with therapists. And they would always come back to me and complain about the people I was trying to pair them with because they would be like, well, I Googled this person and there's nothing online about them except for just like they would put like, on their website, their photo would be like a photo from like a wedding that they attended where they had their hair done or something. And like, it just, it just wasn't even really professional. So, I mean, I think, you know, investing and for me, again, it was a lot of money as a graduate student, uh, just coming out of school. But, um, 
to invest that money and making sure that your website is, is really all set. And then I networked like nobody's business. I actually ended up meeting my husband at a networking event. Like, I mean, I was just, I was networking nonstop. Um, so I just think it's also important to have that you know, proverbial elevator pitch and then making sure that you're out there networking and then um, following up with all of your contacts, um, kind of back to basics here, but even having a newsletter so that you can stay on people's radar. I'm always telling the therapists that are in my programs, um, you know, that your newsletter doesn't even have to say anything super interesting. The point is just, for example, I get a newsletter every month from some accountant that I'm not even using. But then even two years later, when I realize I need a new accountant, he's on my radar because all I have to do is punch accountant into my inbox and there he pops up. So I would just make it really super easy for people to find you. I also do think getting featured in the media in any way, shape or form um, gives you that social proof that you need and it starts building some high quality links to your website. So um, I, when I was first starting out, I used that website, Help a Reporter Out, H-A-R-O, and I would just, you know, churn out quotes for that. Um, that was how I started getting started. Um, and, and one thing led to another. Good folks over at the at Harrow, H-A-R, the, the folks that bought that company are the ones that bought my company in 2012. So I appreciate them very much. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and I love your point in there about thinking about, you know, it is, it's almost a psychological trick, getting out of our own minds and what we're worried about as a, as a service provider or a business provider or a product creator. And instead thinking about the customer, you thought about what the, the customer was suffering from as they were trying to find good providers and, and solve that through all of those creative ways. So I love it. Um, so Dr. Coley, thanks so much for being here, sharing your story with us. We're going to turn to our members and um, answer some questions they'd like to ask. So the first one's from John. John asks, what's the best way to stop negative thoughts? How do we control the direction of thought? Okay, so I want to thank you for that question. And if somebody came to me and asked me that question privately, um, I would say, first of all, we don't necessarily want to stop the negative thoughts kind of like anxiety. We don't necessarily just want to assume that the best thing to do is to get rid of it, right? So if the negative thought is, you know, um, my revenue is plummeting, how am I going to make sure that my employees have enough work to do? Um, we actually don't want to stop that negative thought. Um, sometimes we want to actually explore it and maybe ask for some help with it. If it feels overwhelming, you know, call into our small group of, you know, trusted friends and advisors and ask for a brainstorm session or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, if the negative thought is one that is irrational or inaccurate, that's a different situation, right? So if it's a negative thought, that's like actually something that you do need to think about. We don't want to actually just stop it. We want to think about it constructively. But if you know that it's a negative thought, that's actually irrational, like, um, you know, I'm a failure and um, nobody's going to want to do business with me. Um, if it's that kind of a negative thought, the beauty of those types of negative thoughts is that they're often repetitive. It's often some kind of an old refrain that your inner critic likes to sing. And maybe at one point a long, long time ago, that used to stimulate you into, you know, feeling hungry enough that you'd, you know, maybe make some improvements or whatever. But if you realize that the time has come that you've outgrown that kind of old, irrational, inaccurate, just negative thought, then you would want to do something called thought replacement, which I do cover in my book, um, you know, nervous energy. Um, but with thought replacement, what you would do then is you would take that negative thought and you would say, you know, what's the real story here? You know, I, I'm a failure and nobody wants to do business with me. Like that's definitely not true, but is, is, is the underlying, you know, goal of my inner critic to try to stimulate me to think of ways that I can make my business better so that more people will want to do business with me? Is that like the convoluted mental gymnastics that that inner critic is trying to do? And so then you would want to say, okay, inner critic, I appreciate what you're trying to do, which is to stimulate me to think about how I can be more successful and that more people will want to do business with me. But the way to do it is not to say, untrue things. Like I'm a failure and nobody wants to do business with me. So instead of saying that every time I think that thought, 
Number one, I'm going to congratulate myself for realizing that I was lapsing into that old and productive thought. And then number two, I'm going to say my own, you know, pre-crafted replacement statement. Like, you know, I'm actually, my, my, my business is catching fire in a good way. And at least five people have signed up as clients. And if I put my thinking hat on, I bet I can get five more. So then the idea is that you're, you're grounding yourself in reality and you're thinking about how you can take that anxiety and turn it into a productive force. Incredible, super action-packed tip there. And I think that's what so many entrepreneurs want is like, is, is give us the first two or three plays down, down the playbook. And I love that. Next question is from Amanda. I wonder how many people experience anxiety in persistent physical signs like chronic headaches or back pain? Many, absolutely many. Um, and in fact, for people that don't want to deal with anxiety in the intellectual realm and in the emotional realm, which is actually oftentimes the healthiest place to deal with it, you know, with the way that we can shape our self-talk or think about our challenges constructively by facing them head on. If we won't allow ourselves to do that because we have some kind of a personal rule that anxiety is bad or anxiety makes me weak or, you know, whatever it is. And for some reason we won't give ourselves permission to deal with those things in our conscious mind, I do believe as a yoga teacher, former yoga teacher, that that's when it does start seeping into your body. And I've gotten more referrals than I can count from emergency rooms where, you know, a high functioning person or an entrepreneur has presented at the emergency room saying that they're having a heart attack and, you know, they do the old EKG. They tell them, you know, Mr. Miss, you're fine. You just need to see a psychologist. And so I, I know it's definitely a real thing that if you don't deal with anxiety where it belongs, which is, you know, through discussion and talking and figuring things out in a supportive way, um, then yes, it will manifest in your body. And sometimes that's almost like that proverbial engine light sign getting louder and louder and saying, you know, we're not going away. You got to pay attention. Yeah, that I have heard that story from so many entrepreneurs, and I, I thought it was really interesting. You went right to that direction of in the ER thinking they're having a heart attack. In in my conversations with entrepreneurs, it feels like, and this is all anecdotal from from just conversations, but maybe fifteen to twenty percent, maybe twenty five percent of entrepreneurs have had that exact experience where they end up in a hospital thinking they're dying, and often it's in their twenties and, and in their thirties when everyone's going, "You shouldn't be having a heart attack," and they're even probably saying that to themselves, "I shouldn't be having a heart attack." That might even make it worse. And, um, and I've heard so many stories where they don't get that last piece where the, the medical community in, in emergency care doesn't say this might be an issue in, in your mind state and in your mind. Um, instead they typically, I've, I've heard a lot of stories of EKGs and then they just send you home and say, you don't have a problem. Get out of here. I love to hear that they're doing some handoff to the, the psychological community that can help folks, um, especially these entrepreneurs. All right. Next question is from Shelby Bowers. Uh, Shelby asks, um, we have a connections. Oh, this is from on, on our team at, at Founders First. So we have a connections event coming up about women and entrepreneurship. Have you found a difference in the way women respond to and harness their anxiety from the way men do? You know, that's a really interesting question. So I just want to start by acknowledging that this is a little bit of an area of growth for me. Um, so I've been so focus for much of my life on not wanting to be viewed as a female entrepreneur or a woman in business, that I'll admit that I, I would struggle to sometimes really take a question like that in, in the, in the right way. Um, but, but I appreciate the question. And like I said, it's an area of growth for me. And so it's something I'm working on. Um, and, and I will say that psychology studies have shown, for example, that when it comes to control and anxiety, a lot of times is about control. Um, men, express what psychologists actually call the need for dominance. They express it through very obvious ways, like through giving orders or, you know, being bossy or sometimes even becoming physical. Whereas for women, the way that we tend to express that need for dominance is actually through nurturing. So it's, it's that, it's that mother that's saying, have another bite of soup, dear, right? You know, and, and she's nurturing, but she's actually being controlling. Um, and so 
the, the way that women, you know, may process anxiety, um, the good news is I actually think women are probably better equipped to be honest and in touch with the fact that we're anxious. I, I think in our society, um, the idea of, of a woman who's a little nervous about something is actually almost a little bit more accepted than a man, as Aaron said earlier, that there's a part of him that almost felt like it was perceived as a weakness if he acknowledged anxiety. So one for the girls here, I, I think that like in, in a certain way, we might actually, you know, we're, we're oftentimes more verbal. We want to talk things through. Um, you know, we, we're often actually better at following directions too. So when it comes to self-help and, and thinking about following instructions and learning techniques to deal with our anxiety, we, we might be a little bit ahead of the curve on that one. Great. At what point does, uh, this is a question from Ian, at what point does anxiety become unharnessable? What do you do about it then? So like the point that... Let's Have a of, shot. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> I think you're the second person to mention that, actually. <laughs> I think one of our recent guests said a stiff shot of whiskey. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I say it with a laugh, but, but I actually kind of mean it. Like, I do think sometimes if things just get to the point where it's almost like you're a little bit over the top, um, sometimes you kind of have to just give your body a little bit of a tone down first. And it, it can be a shot of whiskey. It can be a hot shower. It can be a great massage. And, you know, I've done it before as well, like where I'll get a massage, I'll combine them. I'll have, I'll have a shot of whiskey. I'll have a massage. And then also listen at the same time. I love to listen to an audiobook while I'm having the massage, because then it will give my mind that inner monologue something to kind of wrap itself around. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just need to kind of get out of our head a little bit and into our body and that can help. Um, sometimes vigorous exercise can help. Um, certainly opening up to somebody, just booking some time, whether it be with a friend or a coach or whomever, and just saying, I feel like I'm in that over the top space. Can you talk me down? Can you help me figure this out? Um, th those, all, those all work. <laughs> Yeah. And, and here in the state of Colorado, we have all sorts of other uh, legal things that help people calm down sometimes as well that I've heard, hypothetically, I've heard some entrepreneurs use from time to time. <laughs> Definitely good stuff. Lots of options. <laughs> Lots of options. Exactly. All right. Well, Dr. Chloe, thank you again so much for your time and for your amazing work. We're so grateful for your insights. For Everyone who joined us today, Dr. Chloe's, uh, has off Dr. Chloe's offered an incredible gift you can take advantage of right now. Uh, if you look in the Founders First community, there's a post that has a link to her 10 tips for entrepreneurs and a code that will let you download it completely free. So thank you for that gift, Dr. Chloe. And yeah, definitely. You can get that for free with the code founders, as it says in your notes. And if you happen to, you know, be watching this recording after the time when that code is expired, if you do get my book, Nervous Energy, and you like, you know, tweet me or email me a screenshot that you purchased it, I'll send you the top tips for entrepreneurs for free as well. Excellent. Amazing. So everyone remember Dr. Chloe's book, Nervous Energy, Harnessing the Power of Your Anxiety is available on our website at drchloe.com slash book and through Amazon as well. It's going to be an amazing read. You've heard a Thanks, little bit Aaron. about the pieces you're going to get uh, in the book. And so definitely get a copy and check it out. Thanks, Dr. Chloe. Thanks, thanks Aaron. And thanks, Founders First. It was awesome to be with you guys. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful, get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs, and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world.